Hey, Jen. Hey, Tina. You ready? I'm ready. Okay, here we go. You're listening to Speaking of Racism. Happy Black History Month, everyone. My name is Truth, and I am going to be just sharing with you some of my heart about Black History Month and what it means to me to be a Black person in this country, specifically a Black trans non-binary woman, and how that ties into Black history for me. I think that when I think of Black history, the first thing that comes to my mind as a Black person is just the black history that I was taught in school, which I remember being very little. (laughs) I remember February would come and outside of February, not really learning much about my own black history. And, you know, I think about the photos of the people who are represented during Black History Month throughout my school hallways and Every time I'd hear someone bringing up the efforts and labor of different civil rights leaders, I would always see the same people over and over and over. Martin Luther King. I love Martin Luther King. Malcolm X. I love Malcolm X. Harriet Tubman, Rosa Parks, and so many more. But what I personally wish I (laughs) I honestly wish I would have learned more about queer and trans Black people during Black History Month, specifically those who were focused on civil rights and human rights. You know, I think about people like James Baldwin and also Marsha P. Johnson. You know, I don't think that I learned about either of these people until in my mid, early 20s, mid 20s. And That's when I started to feel like, oh my gosh, there are others like me in this movement. I don't have to subscribe to, let's say, for example, a religion that uh, makes me feel that I have to suppress and hide a lot of those aspects of who I am. You know, I think within the, you know, whether it's the Black Lives Matter movement or Pride or anything related to the advancement of Black people that, you know, if I had seen some queer or trans Black civil rights leaders and knew about them, learned about them at an earlier age, I feel like my overall uh, health and sense of reality about white supremacy and racism, specifically anti-Black racism, would have been a lot, I would have understood it a lot more, but Yeah, like I said, I didn't hear about these folks and many others until my early 20s, which is great. I feel like I've been personally going through an awakening, a rebirth. Like my whole life is just changing because I've embraced those parts of me, both as a queer person, a trans person, and someone who does anti-racism work. I see that I can be all of those things. I see that I can embrace all of those things. And for me, that has been extremely empowering. You know, I grew up in the South. I grew up in the Christian environment. And a lot of who I was was just kind of 
overshadowed by everything that everyone else and those spaces wanted me to be. And, you know, I, I feel like there were these parts of me that I could never truly talk about, write about, speak about, or even just make <laughs> apparent, you know, in my life because of all the fears and dangers and different intersections of oppression that those identities come with, that my identity uh, comes with. And I think about how amazing James Baldwin was and how he actually, <laughs> you know, now there's a film, obviously, I Am Not Your Negro, just kind of like, sh and that. just those words alone, I Am Not Your Negro, for me, spoke volume to me because I'm like, who's this black, gay, civil rights man talking about telling America that he's not <laughs> he's not their Negro or anybody's Negro, and especially not white people's Negro. And I was like, I want to know more about him. And, you know, I even ordered my own, um, I ordered a civil rights hoodie that I really love. And it has almost every, you know, a lot of different civil rights leaders on there, you know, um, Martin Luther King, Malcolm, Rosa, Harriet, <laughs> You know, a lot of the ones that we hear about over and over and over again and that white people especially love hearing about because it doesn't confront their lives. It doesn't confront their complacency and their involvement in perpetuating white supremacy. Whereas, you know, I feel like James Baldwin spoke more straightforward about these issues rather in comparison to people like Martin Luther King, who you know, the white people loved. And even Martin Luther King himself had to remind these white people, specifically the white moderates, that their little bit of effort and progression is no progression at all, that they are more dangerous than the Ku Klux Klan. And so I think, you know, white people in that context wanted to praise a peace that truly wasn't there. Whereas James Baldwin was like, oh, hell no. Oh, hell no. And, you know, I am just now realizing a lot of this stuff as a black person doing anti-racism work and advocating on the behalf of black people with a fixation um, often on queer and trans black people because of the uh, disparities that we uh, face and that um, that are often not brought up in these movements because of how much more controversial they can be. Not that talking about racism and white supremacy isn't already controversial, but adding their intersections of queer identity, trans identity especially, can cause a lot of problems. And and in my and in my life, I've been um, I've been blessed to have a sense of uh, shepherding and nurturing that allows me to be a person who will stand up for myself and advocate for myself and others who also cross those same intersections as me. And I think that that that's kind of what makes me a little different. You know, people want to call me crazy, mentally ill, X, Y, Z, simply because I'm raising awareness of these issues uh, on a grand scheme, but also on a more local, uh, personal community level. And I think that that kind of rubs people the wrong way. And I get that. When you're not used to hearing the words white supremacy or anti-racism or black even, you know, specifically my white people, <laughs> just that word, just, just one word, white or black, can make white people feel like loser shit, as we like to say here in the state of Maine. White people lose their shit. 
when we do nothing other than talk about our lives, our black ass lives, and how their white ass lives are why our black ass lives are so, you know, can be so burdensome, such a struggle. And I think for me, just I'm grateful to have met so many uh, queer and trans uh, folks who have provided me with insight and wisdom and history in order to be able to today humanize myself and articulate exactly what I'm feeling and what I have been trying to say since I could remember, you know, since childhood, you know, having all these feelings inside of your black body, but not being able to express them is something painful that I'm still learning and that I'm still growing in. And my uh, initial introduction to this work, to anti-racism work, to what white supremacy is and how it impacts my life started uh, through a platform called Black Girl in Maine, who I used to write for in the past. And I, and I learned so much from, from Black Girl in Maine here in the white state of Maine and decided that, wow, this person who's writing about Black people and Black issues and, you know, white people, seeing, it almost seemed like what I was reading was about me. And that's because it was about me. I was reading other people's work about things that I was going through that I was never able to articulate. And then when I read it, I was like, oh, hell no. So you mean to tell me that I'm working all day, all night this hard just to not be truly humanized, just to not be truly valued by white people. And what I mean by that is I have a background in nursing and I was working at a very, you know, very white corporate cis male ran establishment in healthcare where I dedicated three years of my time and, and you know, over, you know, exertion of labor to... And when I say overexertion of labor, I'm referring to how black people work three times harder than their white peers. Being able to survive in these spaces is literally working three times harder. That's just part of us, our black bodies, working harder than our white peers because nine times out of ten, they don't see the pervasiveness of racism and white supremacy in the same way that our black lens allow us to see. And and so when you know my first three years in in this healthcare establishment felt great. I felt like I was succeeding. I was on my P's and Q's, you know, walking in single file line exactly the way the white people wanted me to and thinking, wow, I'm getting all these awards and like, look at my reputation here. You know, I was I was a music therapist in the psych department. I volunteered on top of my full time job in this white corporate establishment um, in several different departments. Uh again, in addition to my full-time status. And I just felt like once I started reading Black literature that none of that shit mattered, that I had been wasting my time. The experiences, the education that I had obtained and everything that I had learned, I was grateful for. My experiences, my friendships, my everything at that hospital that I worked at here in the state of Maine, right? But for some reason, once I started learning about my Blackness, everything felt different. I There was no way in hell that I could keep my mouth shut about racial issues. I saw everything on the most insidious, pervasive levels. I felt it all. And those three years, though, I felt a little bit of it, but never was able to articulate 
any of what I was feeling. So if a white person in leadership did exemplify some sort of microaggression to me, then I didn't see it. I felt a little bit of it, but I didn't know how to like articulate it. I didn't know how to defend myself. And it wasn't until I started reading Black Girl and Man that I was able to, wow, put things that were happening to me into words, into words in the context of racism and white supremacy and anti-Black racism. <laughs> and my whole world just rocked. It just seemed to change so abruptly and quickly. I lost my job once I started speaking out about this stuff. Police were called on me. I was told I was mentally ill. And that broke my heart. Because I wasn't doing anything other than talking about my black experience in a white space. And for, for that, you know, organization to just say, Hey, we're, you're too much here. You know, you're doing too much. <laughs> we, we just think it would be best if you didn't come back to work. And I was told that by a white man in leadership, you know, the day before I was supposed to come back to work. Wasn't given any reasons as to why or anything like that. And I was so pissed. I was so upset. But I knew that I had to turn my anger and frustration and pain and oppression that came from racism, from white people, into something beautiful. I had to turn it into joy. I had to turn it into survival and healing because I knew my value. I knew my worth from that moment of awakening where no matter how hard I work as a black person in this country, that I would never truly be seen and valued and humanized as a black individual in all of my blackness. And so I think black history for me means something now totally different than it meant for me growing up. Um, you know, there's so many boxes and uh, things you're supposed to not do when you're, uh, you know, when you have religion over your head. And when you're learning about civil rights, you don't hear a lot of queer and trans and, you know, LGBTQ identity represented in, the, in those common civil rights spaces, you know, especially in the South. And so for me, moving up north, being surrounded by more LGBTQ communities, then later being integrated with more uh, queer and trans black indigenous people of color was even more meaningful to me. I was like, who are these people that are like me? And, and who are they walking around so openly about who they are? And like, out, you know, and they're out here succeeding with it. They're out here surviving with it. And I thought, I need to be doing more of this. I need to be speaking about it. I need to be living in my truth. I need to be embracing my truth. And so for me, Black History Month has kind of refocused uh, for me. I don't fixate on those uh, same leaders anymore like I used to. I, I am now diving deep into the work of James Ball and I am diving deep into the work of other black and brown people who cross the same intersections of me and, and just looking at how they navigated their survival amongst this black collective, uh, how they navigated their survival amongst this insidious disease, white supremacy, and being able to essentially inspire other black people who are just like me, who are going through those very same things that I'm going through now and who don't have the words. Like I, I used to not have the words or who don't know how to get out. Like I didn't know how to get out or who even feel like this way that they're living or a way that one is living is the only way to live while doing being a part of the civil rights movement and doing anti-racism work. And now I'm just finding so many different creative ways to embrace who I am and integrate 
my knowledge and skill and what I do here for anti-racism in the state of Maine, into my daily lives, into my workplaces, into the lives of my family. I talk to everybody about this stuff. Ask my job, ask my friends. I think people don't understand that no matter where we exist as black and brown people, especially black people, that we have power and that we need to be speaking our truth, our power to those who are holding corrupt power, which is white people. And for me, it's easier for me to do that here in the state of Maine. I acknowledge that because I do have the experiences of living in the United States South, and it's just not the same. I can say a million things up here that I just can't say down South. I can say a million things down South that I just can't say up here. And so it really, you know, a lot of code switching, acclimating to your environment, but realizing that no matter where you're at, that white supremacy is there. (laughs) And uh, it might not be seen or felt or heard by you, but it's there. And I want to find out ways to to talk about those things more in a safe way, in a way that allows people to heal and have space to grow and also defend themselves and advocate for um, for Black people and against white supremacy. So I think Black history is new history for me. I think what I knew about Black history helped shape, you know, to some degree what I knew about, you know, white people and uh, Black people and this country and beyond, but diving deeper into the work and being able to learn from other queer and trans Black people as well has been life. It has been needed. It has been necessary. And I can't wait to continue to do this work. I look forward to doing this work with Black and brown people. I look forward to uh, being able to speak so boldly and to write so boldly and to be able to, to stand in any space in my full Blackness Uh, as I continue to to grow and learn more. Hi, everybody. This is Gabes Torres, and I am a psychotherapist, an organizer, and a singer-songwriter who aims to do decolonizing and abolitionist work here on so-called Seattle. My favorite Black history moment is kind of like an echo of the past that was felt in a more recent moment, a more recent podcast interview by Autumn Brown and Adrienne Marie Brown with Dr. Alexis Pauline Gums where Dr. Alexis describes the meaning of fugitivity from a black feminist lens. And I'm just going to go ahead and read what she said about that. Dr. Alexis says that fugitivity is as nuanced as a person is. Harriet Tubman was a fugitive in the sense that she was in flight, that she was living an existence that was explicitly and implicitly illegal, yet she believed in her freedom more than she believed in the structures that were incompatible with her freedom. And I find this to be my favorite Black history moment because it served as a portal back into the past, back into history, where Harriet Tubman was not only remembered and named, but it felt as though she was very present in the words of Dr. Alexis Pauline Gums, where Dr. Alexis shared this inherited or this passed on belief that she has more freedom available to her than what oppressive systems and structures say and impose and inflict. And this reminds me of how the revolutionary ancestors of black lives, known and unknown, are continuing to manifest so radiantly in the work, in the words, and the very stories of black women and femmes. Today on the show, I have Becca Epley and Joanna Colwell, who are board members with Speaking of Racism podcast. Welcome to 
Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks, Jen. So we're like dragging Joanna into this because you were kind of like, <laughs> I'm not really a podcaster. I'm a behind the scenes kind of person. But we're here as sort of the white delegate, in a sense, <laughs> to talk about our Black History Month reflections. So for me, I've been on this journey of deconstructing from whiteness and uh, leaning into and learning about what it looks like to become anti-racist and just, you know, journeying in on that. And I would say about four years ago, um, I started homeschooling my kids. And for me, that is when I realized, like, I didn't decide to homeschool them because I wanted to. Mm -hmm. I had to homeschool them because of some medical things. And mm -hmm. so I'm like, okay, if I've got to do this, what is important here? Like, yeah. what do I really want to focus on? And I was really heavily into just this season of learning and reading history and realizing how much... I had grown up with a whitewashed historical perspective, mm -hmm. right? You know, from colorblind rhetoric to the whitewashed MLK Jr. to everything and anything in between. And I decided that if there was anything that I was going to do as a parent, the thing that was most important was to give my children an education that was not... Uh, that was that was decolonized. Mm -hmm, but yeah, my challenge yeah. was I didn't know how to do that because I didn't grow up with a decolonized perspective, right? So, uh, you know, a lot of times we lean back on the things that we know mm -hmm. and everything I knew was needing to, like, I, I needed to throw out everything that I knew, right. essentially. <laughs> so I remember, like, reaching out to just a variety of people. I had um, Delina Price McFall, on from woke homeschooling she had just started her curriculum so i was really excited to find her and i was part of like the secular eclectic academic homeschool group and i i was like hey folks here's the thing i need a decolonized historical like curriculum what do you have for me and people were like eh, i don't really know and i found this curriculum and this was just four years ago maybe three that it came out where i found this curriculum that was sort of doing something differently and it was decolonized. It wasn't centered around mm. European Christianity, colonialism. And that's kind of what started our journey. And so for me as a homeschool mom, when I think about Black History Month, I love Black History Month and I love celebrating it. Mm -hmm. But because I'm dedicated to this idea of Black History 365, mm -hmm. it's kind of like, yeah, this is awesome. So what we're going to do is we're actually going to watch movies. So each week we start out the week with a movie. And then I kind of build the curriculum around that. And it's just this fun way of digging into something with the kids. And I say fun because it's a movie, right? Yeah. Like the kids are like, sweet, we get to watch a movie and eat popcorn. <laughs> what are some um, of the movies that you've watched? So we actually started out with Hidden Figures. And my kids are 10. I do want to um, show them Selma. I think it's a little advanced for their age, but I'm still going to do it mm -hmm. uh, because I think it's really important. And these are conversations that we've been having for years. So it's not going to be shocking to them. Yeah, in a exactly. Sense. Um, 
And so for me, I just think about Black History Month as like this space and time that we can celebrate. But my role as a person who is white and who is focused on being a co-conspirator and deconstructing mm -hmm. from this and dedicating to my own internal journey and my family um, is to make sure that black history is every single month mm -hmm. in our household. Mm -hmm. And so we can talk about different ideas and things that I use, but I just wanted to say like, so for my black history month reflection, it really is like, what is my role and how can I make sure that I build this into my household, into my children daily? So mm -hmm. just starting there. <laughs> That's awesome. That was the first thing I thought of is like every month is Black History Month. Yeah. You know, I mean, if we're doing our work, then we are reading, we are learning, we are having these conversations we're listening to podcasts we're educating ourselves and it's not like oh it's february time to get with the program because february is the shortest month anyway so it's like of course of all the months to be dedicated to black history they would pick the shortest month like every month should be for black history <laughs> Well, who is, it was Gerald Ford. He officially recognized it in 76. Um, and then, but was actually created. And I, I took a few notes uh, in 1926, because I would not remember this. Becca uh, came prepared. I did. And actually part of that has been my journey this month specifically, because I've realized when I've been reflecting on in black history, who has played a significant role and impacted my life greatly. And it doesn't go that far back. Um, it really is limited. Um, my knowledge, as far as it, growing up, I grew up in actually predominantly, um, the schools I went to were actually predominantly um, Latinx schools. Um, I grew up out West in California and Colorado, but, my context of black history really is as generic and not to um, understate um, Martin Luther King that I have the dream speech, but like literally that encapsulates it. That's my black history knowledge from K through my undergrad. Um, and so it wasn't until the last six years that I really started like just learning basically how, I've missed <laughs> um, all of history in some senses. Um, there's so much that is there that was whitewashed. Yeah. It's such a theft. It's like the more you learn, you know, you learn about Black Wall Street 100 years ago this year. You learn about, you know, just the centuries of basically pillaging and it all, and it's even the history is stolen and it, and it's not just stolen i mean i feel like my journey toward anti-racism has been a lot about coming to understand that it's this is for all of us mm -hmm. you know like white people are really damaged by being taught that we are superior Mm -hmm. And white people are really damaged by white supremacy. And it, you know, it takes, a, it's not to the 
same level, it takes a really, really different form. Mm -hmm. um, So not at all to minimize who is harmed the most by white supremacy, but it does really stunt us emotionally and spiritually. Um, And it, of course, leads to us living in like one of the most unequal societies with the, you know, rampant injustice that screws everybody over, you know? And so like, I feel like trying to deconstruct white supremacy in myself and in my local community is very much an act of self preservation, you know, mm. for my own family and for all of us and our, the future that we, that all of us share. That's I really just really good. went off on a tangent there, but I was just trying to say like, it's a, no, it's good. right. Like even to the, that we didn't grow up learning in school, you know, like I'm also from California. I grew up in some of the schools that I went to were minority white, but because I was in like the gifted program, they figured out how to have these like segregated white bubbles oh. in a school that was mostly black and brown. That was my middle school, I remember vividly, you know, and and it's just like I feel like for every for all the kids like to not get this rich history And San Francisco has like really important civil rights history. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we were it was like stolen from all of us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Going back just like a couple quick steps, I realized I made my comment and um, I totally centered myself and got off what I who I was going to mention was Carter G. Woodson. Uh, he was um, the part of the Association of the Study of Negro Life and History, and he had announced the second week in February to be Negro History Month, which was the actual origin, original date, and f- he was the founder, Carter G. Woodson. And so wanted to put that back in there. Yeah, one of the things that um, I also kind of forgot to mention or that I'd like to mention is that the perspective and where we start often centers enslavement as the beginning of Black history. Mm. And so I saw a post this year that I really appreciated, and I forget who created it, maybe one of you know, but it said that slavery is white history. Everything after that is black history. And I was like, that is so powerful and so important. And that's something that I want to just kind of talk about, because for the listeners who are tuning in who are white, um, one of the things that I really wanted to do with my kids, and I'm really happy that I got to have this influence so early on, is when I introduced black history to the kids, when I introduced just history to the children, they got to learn about black history, starting with the origins of Mm. humankind. And they got to learn about ancient African kingdoms and civilizations and leaders and, and people so that by the time they got to the early founding of the United States mm. and we started talking about enslavement, they could see it as so clearly the theft and the dehumanization and the evil that slavery was. And so um, so that's something that I, I 
really, um, like, I don't know the exact words I want to use. Um, but that's something that I had learned and I don't know where, you know, or, or had heard. Uh, but I just felt like that was a really important thing to do. Nikki um, Black made a um, right. similar post on February 1st. And one of the slides says chattel slavery is white history. Yes. Mm. Yep. Which if you all aren't following Nikki Black, you should go um, and follow her and join her Patreon community after you've joined Speaking of Racism's Patreon community. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and her uh, and Nikki's name is uh, spelled N-I-K-K-I, and then it's Black, B-L-A-K, so at Nikki Black. Thank you. It's really interesting to me, another part of my life, of growing up, was that when I've tried to really think back and look um, again at who in black history had shaped, uh, been that person or individuals who shaped my perspective. And it really focuses around pop culture um, as a white person. And so for me, it was music um, or it was movies. Um, And I probably, I don't think I had really, truly black friends until I was an adult. Um, and it's very interesting, especially growing up. Um, another interesting part about it is, you know, the church. The churches are very segregated. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, that's a really important piece to open our minds to um, how we segregated each other. And there are these... Um, amazing black scholars, amazing womanist scholars that we never, I was never even aware of or knew what the term womanist meant. Mm. And it really is like we, well, we weren't aware because our privilege lets us walk unaware. But there was another world. And so I hope if, if anything those who are listening, if Black History Month, this is the beginning of your journey, let it be the beginning. Um, let it not be the month. Let it not be this. I've checked off my list of what I've learned because there's a lot, a lot to learn and so many amazing, talented black people who have created bodies of work that you can research. So black history for me is just a remembrance to keep pushing into the work. Yeah, that's a really nice way to put it. I'm also um, spending my black history month this month, helping a friend of mine get elected to local office. Um, If she wins, she will be the first black woman to serve on the select board of our small town in Vermont. I live in the second whitest state. So there's, you know, people of color, black folks way underrepresented in all of our, you know, government at the state level and at the local level, just to, to be, she's a trailblazer, even just running for the office. She's a, a trailblazer. And so I've gotten to like, and I've, it's been really a privilege to just figure out like how best to 
be on her campaign team and support her. Um, so that's a fun thing that you can do is support your local black candidate. Um, and be also that's make the future black history. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've been thinking a lot about this current moment in history that we're in and like how, I mean, people are going to be talking about this day or the, you know, the, the, the insurrection and what happened in the aftermath of the insurrection. Um, it's going to be a really important day in American history, you know, a, a terrible day in American history. And, um, and I've just been thinking so much about white supremacy and that, that attempted insurrection as a white supremacist tantrum at having, you know, at, at things not going their way. And just that is like in a long line of history of, of every time that black people have, you know, achieved progress. I mean, we didn't even get to celebrate Georgia for one minute before this Mm -hmm. happened you know and like just it's like the white violent mob that erupts every time there are significant gains Mm -hmm. in black political power and so I've just been thinking about that a lot and how how you know, you keep, you hear these statistics, like most American people support a living wage or support um, a sensible climate policy or, you know, things that are going to like actually help our, our world survive. (laughs) And then, and I think about strikes and general strikes and times when people have pushed back against the powers that are seem like they're just hell bent on destroying the future for, you know, and so I was reading a little bit about the Atlanta washerwoman strike of 1881, um, which, you know, is like not that long after the end of slavery that, um, these women who were cleaning all the clothes for all the white people of Atlanta and they were being paid four to eight dollars a month for this backbreaking labor like you would have to they would have to go to the houses pick up the clothes take them to their own place haul this water make their own soap out of lie and I can't remember what, you know, I mean, it was like backbreaking, grueling, dangerous work. And then like wash the clothes, press the clothes, fold the clothes, haul them back to the place. And like, that was life. And something like, this was so amazing though, like 20 women, basically 20 black women who were laundresses, they got together in a black church and they were like, how are we going to make things better? 
we've got to we've got to be paid more, you know, and have more rights. And they within three weeks had three thousand people that were all gonna go on strike. And so mm. I just encourage people to read about that. There's the I first heard about it on the podcast Code Switch. There's a really amazing episode about the Atlanta washerwoman strike. So mm. I've just been thinking about that. Oh, because on the Code Switch they were comparing it to when the um, black when the black um, basketball players were striking um, in the wake of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. Mm. Um, so just to bring that back, if I can pull in my reel of consciousness, I've just been thinking about political power and the labor movement and black organizers and throughout history, how they how how much inspiration there is to be found in people like banding together for their own community, but then that ends up benefiting everyone. Um, any other thoughts that we want to close out with? Pay reparations. Okay. <laughs> Direct reparations for black women and non-men. That's all just, I love that slogan for Black History Month. It's very catchy, isn't it? Yes. I love it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Let February be the beginning of your journey. If it is. Yeah, that's good. And since I took the education route, I'm going to give a few recommendations here at the end for people. If you have children enrolled in school, go and be an active participant in asking what is being taught, how Black history is being taught, how it is being entwined in the curriculum throughout the year, what they're doing specifically for Black mm. History Month. If the, you know, um, something that we use year round that I actually have on the table, uh, and I'll just, we'll play with flashcards during dinner and stuff is Urban mm-hmm. Intellectuals has a whole series of Black History cards, mm-hmm. which are really cool. So I incorporate those. Um, Delina Price McFall's Woke Homeschooling. You can find her on Instagram and Facebook. That is a really amazing curriculum. And she, when, when she was first on the Speaking of Racism podcast, she had only developed it for the lower grades, but now they have a high school curriculum. She also turned me on, and you guys can't see this, but I'm on video and I'm going to show <laughs> Becca and Joanna. Um, there is a new book out of, from DK, and it's called Timelines from Black History. And the cool thing about it, I mean, I have my things and I want to talk to Delina about it, actually. But the cool (laughs) thing about it is it starts with human origin, right? And it's not necessarily as American centric, though there's quite a bit. It's not history. So I would just say from a history perspective, bringing that in, building that in and understanding that you are learning alongside with your kids as well which is Mm -hmm. a great opportunity. Mm. All right. Thanks for coming on and talking. And thanks for having us. Yeah. Thank you. And thank you to Grapes for the music. The song is I Don't Know.